I'm going to begin in prayer this morning. Sometimes singing things, you get kind of caught up in the tune, not always, hopefully very intentional about thinking about what you're singing. But just for a moment, I want us to think about what we just asked God for, what we just asked of him. All who are thirsty, all who are weak. I, I guarantee there's some hungry, thirsty people here this morning. I, I mean, I am, and I know that there are different reasons why we're hungry or thirsty. We can pray this morning before we even consider the word together that we've come to the right place and we can trust that we have, that we've come to a fountain that's ample, flowing. We've come to a place to, to eat where there's plenty. Come to the fountain, dip your heart in the stream of life. We're not just coming to, like the Samaritan woman, just to get a drink of water, but we can actually meet Jesus at the well and find an ever-flowing fountain that ministers to every particular thirst in here. And they're all different. And they vary from day to day, even within the person. And then our God is that specific, that surgical in ministering to each of our particular needs. What a great God we have. What a great Jesus. Let the pain and sorrow be washed away. In the waves of his mercy as deep cries out to deep, we sing, come Lord Jesus, come. Come Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Lord, a few things I want to lift up this morning before we actually climb into the Word. I want to pray for a brother um, and his wife and his ministry and pray for Greg Fields, just a close friend, closer than a brother in so many ways. Thankful so much for his friendship, for his shared ministry to this community. Thankful for the gospel being put on display in the marriage uh, that he has with Tracy. I'm thankful that they enjoy you out loud in so many ways. Walk in the word that's exposed each week. I'm thankful for Westminster Presbyterian. Thankful for what you're doing in that church and how that you're just bringing the right family at the right time for steady, sustained, healthy growth. And Lord, we're thankful that as they grow numerically, they're growing deep roots and um, that it's grounded in truth and is fueled by worship. I'm just thankful for um, a shared ministry here in this community already. Um, Just pray that you would continue to grow that in whatever way you have in mind in the future. Lord, too, this morning, I want to pray for a local official. I want to pray for Steve Alexander, uh, city manager. I want to pray for his, uh, his job, obviously. I pray that he is able to do his job and he's able to do it well in a way that would make for peace where the gospel can be enjoyed here. Lord, I too pray for his uh, marriage and his family and his worship, Lord, that if he knows you, that he is walking with you and enjoying you and leading his family in that. If he doesn't know you, that you would stir life within him and uh, that you would draw him to you. Uh, Whatever way that we can come alongside Steve and encourage him in his work and his worship, I pray that you would give us eyes for that and give us opportunity. Lord, too, I want to pray this morning for a Far Corners ministry that we have the privilege of being connected to. I pray for Darren Sapp and for um, Nathan Green and the the work that you've called these guys to in mobilizing the church in Ghana. I'm thankful that you put on their hearts a burden for orphans, uh, international uh, context, and especially in Ghana. And Lord, I'm thankful too that you have refined and grown his ministry 
into mobilizing the saints in Ghana so that the church can be the church. And I'm thankful for an exponential impact on good and undefiled religion and caring for orphans and widows in their distress. Lord, I pray that you would further that ministry and that work. I pray that you would sustain it through your people. I pray that the outcome would be greater than what Darren puts his hands to so that he sees you at work, so that others see you at work, so that you get all the glory. Thankful in advance for orphans made family. Lord, in these next few minutes, <clears throat> I dedicate these next few minutes to you and thankful for how we get the chance to spend them. I'm thankful that in many ways we get to spend a Sabbath in the next few minutes, just enjoying you as creator, as deliverer. We entrust these next few minutes to you. I entrust them to you as preacher. I pray that your people will be equipped for worship and wonder. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We're starting a series of sermons from Hebrews 4, but I'm not preaching from Hebrews 4 today. But I am starting a series of sermons from Hebrews 4. Turn to Genesis 2. As you're turning there, I'll share with you a plan for the morning and sort of a map for the next few weeks, the next five to six weeks. The series of sermons is called the Rest Series, and it's sort of a long title, but it's, it, it works for me anyway, and I think you'll see over the course of the next few weeks that it, it is a good title for where we're going in the next few weeks. The Rest Series, Rest Later, Rest Now. That's the title, and that's in that order for that reason. And then today specifically... The little subtitle is the Sabbath. In the transition from Hebrews chapter 3 to Hebrews chapter 4, some interesting things take place. There's a lot of the same language. There's references to Psalm 95. If you've been in on that journey together, you know that Psalm 95 is pointing back to the Exodus experience and how the people disbelieved God and the consequences is that This wilderness experience was not just 40 years of travel, but 40 years of one funeral after another for the generations that were adult generations who disbelieved God. Hebrews chapter 3 goes from an emphasis and encouragement on staying true to God in hopes of receiving and enjoying the promised land like the, the Israelites should have like the land that was promised to them, Canaan would have been experienced and enjoyed had they stayed the course with God. The encouragement to the Hebrews church is continue with Christ and enter the promised land in chapter 3. And then that transitions to chapter 4 to continue with Christ and enter the Sabbath. Continue with Christ and enter the Sabbath. Chapter 3 is a Warning, don't bail on God or you'll miss out on the promised land. Chapter 4 moves to don't bail on God or you'll miss out on the Sabbath. So what I realized we needed to do at least this morning is we needed to connect to and understand the Sabbath in order to make sense. 
of Hebrews chapter 4. And I think what we're going to find is we may find some things that are just interesting. We may find some things that aren't especially profound. They're just interesting. We may actually find that we're equipped for something that might just show up later where you, when you least expect it. I was thinking about sort of like the Heimlich Maneuver. You know, you might learn how to do the Heimlich Maneuver, and you never know when you're going to need it. And then Christy Cardwell comes to the rescue and shows you how it's done. These things happen at times where we don't realize something that might feel awkward when you're learning it later is just like apples of gold and fields of silver. We may find that some of the things that we consider this morning are just equipping for later use. But I trust that what we're going to consider this morning, some of it, maybe a lot of it, is going to help us make sense of the next few weeks that our little investment in just the Old Testament connections to the Sabbath will pay big dividends later on. And let me tell you right now, I've thought about sort of um, preparing you not to think of a day, like coaching you, don't think of a Sabbath day, but I'm actually making a decision to not coach you to do that, not coach you to not think of it. In fact, if you spend the next couple of weeks thinking about the Sabbath as just a day, that's okay, because in the next few weeks, you're going to realize the Sabbath is, oh, so much more than one day. This little day period that we're going to study today, the day or the year, points to something that's more really a concept that's going to come into fruition in and through the work of Christ that we'll find out and discover here in these next few weeks. Now, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to gather some satellites. Let me explain to you sort of an illustration that I've used over the last few years. Some of you have heard it. Most of you have heard it. Some of you haven't. So I want you to understand what I'm doing and what we often do in expository preaching is gathering contextually handled satellites. When I went in the Marine Corps in 1990, global positioning systems were new. I served in a boat raid company where we launched from a mothership in the middle of the night out of the back of a mothership in these little Zodiac boats. The whole company of Marines would launch in these Zodiac boats 10, 12 nautical miles from shore, and we would go in through the cover of darkness and do these raids on, on land, and they would punch back out through the surf zone and go back out to the ship, and nobody ever knew we were there. I mean, they'd know we were there, but, but they wouldn't know, wouldn't know where we came from. It's a pretty cool deal, but we had these things that we used for navigation. First of all, we had these charts these laminated charts where we would shoot an azimuth to lighthouses. Sounds pretty primitive, but it's worked for people for, for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. Shooting these back azimuths where you would triangulate and figure out where you are. Floating in the ocean, a little Zodiac boat. You could do that. But then they had these things that came out called GPS units. And we're like, man, this thing is bad. It was like this big. It had a big strap. You'd wear it around your neck. It was one per company. And this thing was like gold wear this thing around your neck and you would turn it on, it'd make a noise, you know, you hear the thing power up. And you'd sit there for 5, 10, 15 minutes maybe waiting for that thing to gather satellites. There weren't that many satellites in the air. First of all, the technology's new. And secondly, this unit didn't have the power that some of our units have now. And you would sit there and wait for it to gather at least three satellites and it would not give you a reading unless you had three satellites. If you only had one satellite, you could be anywhere along an azimuth, so it wouldn't give you any real sense of where you were. If you had two satellites, you could be, you're getting closer, but you needed three to triangulate. 
So the more satellites you had, even beyond three, the more sure of your location. And that mindset has helped us in our handling of expository preaching where we realize there's actually a name for it in hermeneutics. It's called analogy of faith, where you let Scripture interpret Scripture. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to gather nine satellites. We're going to be especially sure of where we are, at least this morning. Now, the problem is there are many more satellites that we're going to continue in these next, or we're going to gather in these next few weeks. So don't park yourself on where we land after the nine. Okay, I don't want you to park there, although you might spend the next couple weeks thinking this is a day. Remember, I told you I'm not going to coach you not to, not to think that. Double negative for emphasis. I'm not going to coach you not to think that. It's okay to think about it for a day, but realizing that as we gather more satellites, we're going to find that the Sabbath is so much bigger than a day. But this morning, anyway, we're going to gather nine satellites. We're going to have a good reading on where we are at the end of the day. So Genesis chapter 2 is our first contextually handled satellite. Let me tell you, too, before we climb into this, this morning is going to be a little bit more of a Bible study than a sermon. I've had to coach myself to be okay with that because I want to preach it. But the preaching in some ways is going to come in these next few weeks. I'm equipping you to receive some messages in the coming weeks. So you need to kind of shift gears a little bit and think, okay, I need to grab my Bible and I need to get ready to do some work. You're going to have to work to understand the Sabbath. Hopefully you get the irony there. Genesis chapter 2 is the first place we're going. And we're going to move pretty quickly through each of these satellites. We're just going to gather them. We're going to make some statements about what we've gathered. And then I'm going to leave you with some questions to prepare you for the coming weeks. Okay? Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. <clears throat> this word rested here in the Hebrew is the word sabbat, S-A-B-A-T. <clears throat> it's not spelled the same way Sabbath is spelled, but it's where scholars believe Sabbath came from. It makes sense. The word sabbat means to cease and to pause. And here God, after working six days and creating six days, is pausing and ceasing from his work and resting. <clears throat> Something that's interesting to think about over the course of this week, this is day seven, which would have been Saturday. <clears throat> it's interesting to think about what develops over the course of the week. I found one commentator that considered that the seventh day Sabbath was the climax of the creation week. Now, I've always thought of the sixth day being the climax where man is created. Think for a minute about what's created over the course of the week. Light is created on the first day. The upper and lower expanses are created on the second day. Dry land and vegetation is made on the third day. The sun, moon, and stars is made on the fourth day. The sea creatures and the birds are created on the fifth day. Livestock, creepy crawlies, and man and beasts are created on the sixth day. And then the seventh day is rest. This commentator made the argument that this sort of climax is actually in the seventh day rather than the sixth day. If all we had was this passage, 
We may wonder if that's actually the case. But see, what happens in the rest of our Bibles tells us that the guy may be on to something. He may be on to something when we think about the number of passages in our Bible, one after another, book after book, that tells us more about the Sabbath. We're going to consider some of those today. Then maybe, in fact, this was the climax of the creation week. I have my own suspicions about it. I know that Jesus had many conversations with the Pharisees about the Sabbath, and in one of those conversations, he said that man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man, so I continue to put the climax on the creation of man. But I think he may be on to something in order of, in, in, in what he's getting at in order of priority and importance of that day, the Sabbath day created for rest. This thing that I fear that is so underhandled, <clears throat> and I use that word on, on purpose, underhandled or maybe even mishandled, the thing that in so many contexts is reduced to a day of the week that you can't gut your grass, right? Or a day of the week you can't go hunting. When I was growing up, that was a conversation I had with my buddies, my Cajun buddies back in Louisiana. I can't go hunting today because it's Sunday. What? That was the mindset. This thing that is so often mishandled or underhandled shows up in week one of creation. And it shows up in a context that gets equal airtime with the creation of light, equal airtime with the creation of sea creatures and birds, equal airtime, don't miss it, with a day's worth of creating livestock, creepy crawlies, beasts, and man. Even if we don't agree that it's the climax of the week, we have to agree that it must be important to show up one-seventh of creation week is dedicated to rest. This thing, this Sabbath thing that's so underhandled and so mishandled might be important if we just had Genesis 2 to consider. Now turn to Exodus 20, satellite number two. We're going to sort of build the data here. First of all, we know that the word means, or Sabbath, means to cease and to pause. We know that it's something that God did. He created in six days. He rested on the Sabbath. That would have been the seventh. It would have been Saturday. And then there's Exodus chapter 20. Context for Exodus chapter 20 is the nation of Israel has been built through the fiery furnace of affliction in Egypt. And they've been delivered from Egypt through the mighty acts of judgment called the plagues. They've crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground, crunch, 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 walking right across it. Pharaoh and his army have been folded in on the sea or by the sea. And they've been led to the base of Mount Sinai. And here God speaks to them from heaven with the Ten Commandments. A pretty profound moment. Sinai quakes. Any critters that even got too close to the mountain died. And God shares these Ten Commandments from heaven. You've likely read the Ten Commandments or you've least heard about them. One of those Ten Commandments is in chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work. You are your son, are your daughter, are your male servant, are your female servant, are your livestock, or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. A few thoughts about that passage. First of all, if you look just word-wise, just at Exodus chapter 20, word-wise, the Sabbath gets more airtime than any other commandment. It gets more airtime than thou shalt not murder. More airtime than thou shalt not steal. They shall not commit adultery. More airtime than even thou shalt not have any other idols or make any idols or any graven images. That's close. That one's pretty close. But Sabbath gets more airtime than any of the other commandments. And here from this passage, too, you get a little sense of what God has in mind there in verse 11. He says, for, you observe the Sabbath, for in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them. This is pointing toward this concept that God wants you to have, or the nation of Israel to have, on this day where they observe the Sabbath, where they remember creation. You observe the Sabbath, you rest from your work, for God created in six, and God rested on the seventh. It's mindset of creation. And so God blessed the Sabbath, and he called it, or he reckoned it, holy. That word means consecrated, and that word means set apart. He called this day holy, consecrated, and set apart. Now, Turn to Exodus chapter 23. Next satellite. Beginning in verse 10. Gathering satellites. Gathering data. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it, that being the land, rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest." that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and that the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. This is the first little picture we have that the Sabbath is not just about a day, but a Sabbath is leaning in the direction of being more of a concept because here it's applied to a whole year where the land gets its own Sabbath. The fields where crops are planted get their own Sabbath. And in the Sabbath, there's provision for all of creation. The beasts of the field can come. Poor people can come. The land gets a break. The working critters get a break. And there's a Sabbath for the servants and for the aliens. And it says, 
so that they may be refreshed. Let me just ask you, if this is maybe your first consideration of Sabbath, maybe ever, just to think for a minute, what does that tell you about our God that he set up a provision like that? I cannot tell you how often I'm talking with people about God and they have this concept of God being this cosmic killjoy that's just waiting to smash you like a bug when you step out of line. And what we ought to be doing is we ought to be gathering these sort of truths and letting all of these sort of things paint a picture of who our God, our Heavenly Father is, where we look at something like this and say, what kind of God would make a provision even for the beasts, for the ravens, for the deer? for the antelope, a provision for an oxen. Give the oxen a year off. A provision for the field that's even inanimate. Can't object to being used year after year after year after year. Where God builds those sort of provisions for the alien, for the stranger, for the poor. What does that tell us about our God? It tells us we have a God that in fact cares for the least cares for the lowest, cares for the forgotten. Man, the mindset of a cosmic killjoy is missing who our God is. What a sweet provision for all of creation in the concept of Sabbath. Turn to Exodus 31. It's our next one. Beginning in verse 12. Gathering in more data, treasured data. And the Lord said to Moses, let me, let me say this too. Hopefully you've recognized that this book, this Bible, at least in the early books, saturated with conversation about the Sabbath. It's like you turn the page, there's a new conversation about the Sabbath. These passages, these satellites that we're gathering, is not, it's not exhaustive. It's all over our Old Testaments. We're just grabbing a few of them. This next one, Exodus chapter 31. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Above all, above all things, above all commandments, <clears throat> Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever." It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. <clears throat> There's some sweet data to be collected here. First of all, there is a sign. The Sabbath is a weekly, and if you think in terms of land, every seven-year sign, like a rainbow, 
is a sign every time it rains of a promise that God has made to all creation. This is a weekly sign between God and his people. I love the fact that it's weekly. And if you just consider for a moment, there might be some things that we need to be reminded of frequently, relentlessly, regularly, often, ongoing, resting in him. Weekly sign that above all, above all things, above all commands, you set this day aside and pause. You set this day aside and cease. Or better, you recognize me setting it aside so that you may know that the same Lord that sanctified the day and set the day aside has sanctified the people and set you aside. Man, that's good. You take a day, a day of the week, because I I want you to remember this weekly, relentlessly, ongoing, continually, perpetually. The same God that set that day aside set you aside as his people. And then then in verse 14, the first time we've seen this gravity of transgressing it. In verse 14, death to the one who profanes it. Death to the one who transgresses it, profanes it. I saw that word and I'm like, man, I'm thinking about <clears throat> profaning the Sabbath. What must, the, you know, what must he be thinking there if he's saying profane the Sabbath? That would be like wearing a t-shirt that says down with Sabbath. You know, wearing a, walking around with a sign, Sabbath is stupid, Sabbath is stupid, picketing Sabbath. I'm going to work on any day I want. Or you like the Ghostbuster sign. You got a big circle here with a line going through it and Sabbath. That's not profaning the Sabbath. Profaning the Sabbath is working. The very thing that he commands you to do in six days, he commands you not to do on a seventh of the time. Man, it's easy to profane if you think about it. We're going to see an example of that in a minute. It's easy to transgress this thing and this thing that he says, above all, pay attention to the Sabbath. Transgression means death. Man, that's going to come into focus in the next few weeks. It's going to make so much sense in the next few weeks. I'm so, it's like an alley-oop where the, uh, you know me in sports. I love sports a lot, like watching sports and all. So it's like an alley-oop where the basketball is just hanging right above the net. And it's just going to get slandered in the next few weeks where it's going to totally make sense. Right, Nathan? He knows my basketball imagery. Makes a lot of sense there. It means a lot to me. (laughs) Something else that comes out of this passage, this reference here in Exodus chapter 31, is we find that it's a covenant day. A covenant day, meaning it's a very important day to remember our covenant partner and our covenant husband. And lastly, the thing that really snuck up on me that surprised me, when I really considered it, it says God rested on this day and God was refreshed. God was refreshed. That struck me for a minute because I didn't never, I mean, I never considered that God wasn't not freshed. Why would he need to be refreshed? I know he didn't need the day off. He could have just kept right on creating. But God being intentional and setting a day where he's decided, I'm going to do something that I don't even need And when I do that, when I rest from my work, I, one who don't even need it, am refreshed. 
If God is refreshed in that day, what might we be, even if we think we don't need it? If we follow maybe not necessarily the day, but the concept, we might find refreshment too. The next satellite is in Exodus 34. Verse 21. Exodus 34, verse 21. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest in plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. That's a subtle passage because it's not really embedded within a a big handling of the Sabbath conversation. It's a very small little statement made right there embedded within a pretty profound chapter where God reveals his name to Moses, where he says, in six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. What he's saying there is lay aside work, cease and pause regularly, regularly, frequently, relentlessly, often, ongoing, above all, even in the busiest times of plowing and harvest. Man, I could talk to the farmers, and he's saying, oh, I don't know about that. Ooh, I can rest later. It's harvest time. I can rest later. I have a narrow window to plow. Rain's coming. I got to get my work done. But the mindset here for the worshiper is I'm going to set all this stuff aside, and I'm going to cram whatever work I can into six, but by gracious, I'm going to do what he said, and I'm going to set even these urgent issues aside, plowing and harvest, so that I can, above all, obey God. What trust that would take for the farmer? Well, your whole livelihood is based on plowing and harvest. What trust What dependence on God? God, I'm going to entrust these crops to you. I'm going to entrust these fields to you. I'm going to entrust my living to you, my provision, all of it to you. And I'm going to park these things a seventh of the time. And I'm going to put it all back in your hands and be reminded maybe on that day that it's all in your hands in the first place. What a great reminder. What obedience that would take. The next satellite is in Exodus 35. Beginning in verse 1. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath. If you hadn't figured out by now, God doesn't want you to work on the Sabbath. Or he doesn't want the nation, I should qualify. He doesn't want the nation of Israel to work on the Sabbath. Period. Every single reference says don't work, don't work, don't work, don't work. Rest, cease, pause, even in the busiest times, even in the plowing, even in the harvest. No work. How important is it so far? If we just think about just the data we've collected so far, in the first week it shows up a seventh of the time, possibly the climax of the week. If not the ultimate of the week, at least the penultimate moment of the week. Just shy of the climax, if not the climax itself. 
It makes the top 10 and gets more airtime in Exodus 20 than any of the other 10. And here, it's saturating the book of Exodus. Page after page talks about the Sabbath. Could you think it could possibly be important? At least a concept? And then here, he says yet again, don't do any work. In fact, don't even kindle your fire on the Sabbath. I thought about how that might play out. You know, it might play out on the Sabbath day, if you're going to observe, above all things, the Sabbath, as it's being presented here, that you might actually be cold. You might actually be cold if you didn't prepare for it. If on Friday you didn't get out and say, okay, I'm going to gather up some kindling wood, and you think, I'm just going to do that Saturday, or I'll take care of that later, you might actually spend what's supposed to be a day of rest freezing, burr, hard to rest there. But the mindset is actually preparing to rest. That's a new concept because we do it so reactively. Proactively preparing intentionally to rest, gathering up what we need so that we can rest later. And then there's this context issue for this particular reference here in Exodus chapter 35 that means so much to me, ministers to me. Exodus chapter 35, these first three verses deal with Sabbath, and then where does it go in the rest of the chapter? Contributions for the tabernacle. And then in chapter 36, construction of the tabernacle, making the ark, making the table, making the lampstand, making the altar of incense, making the altar of burning, making the court, making the bronze basin, materials for the tabernacle. The rest of this passage has to do with building God's house. And I'm going to tell you what, this pastor right here needed to see that reference to resting in the context of building God's house. In so many words, what he's saying is, you better rest even in building my house. Man, there are many, many a pastor, many a minister has sacrificed his family and sacrificed rest on the altar of ministry. And here in this context, when you see it, you just got to go, okay, I'm going to exhale. Even God's work needs to be parked at times where we entrust it back to him, where we remember, oh, it's in his hands anyway. And we're building so much into our people when we do that. I hope y'all see that for me once a week at least. I take Fridays off intentionally on purpose. If you text me or you call me or you send me an email on Friday, I probably won't respond to it. If somebody's at death's door or something, I'll probably go see them. But I need it. I need a break from you. I need a break from good things. That's the mindset of a Sabbath is you're taking a break from even good things, from even things that you treasure. I have a lot of my, my mindset is probably a lot like the farmer's mindset. There's plowing and harvest going on all the time, all the time, all the time. I read some stats this morning. Tracy Fields, in fact, posted something on Facebook for Christy, and I'm a kind of a Facebook stalker on Christy's Facebook page. So I saw this this morning. It was interesting. 90% of pastors said the ministry was completely different than what they thought it would be before they entered the ministry. Some interesting stats. The number one reason the pastors leave the ministry is that church people are not willing to go the same direction as the goal of the pastor. Just some different little stats like that. 
40% of pastors say they have considered leaving their pastorates in the last three months. Not comforting. 50% of ministers starting out will not last five years. That's not a very good stat. 50% of ministers, and this doesn't just apply to elders. This applies to our 20-something deacons in our body that can all think, if I'm not there to save the day, then the day's not going to be saved. Some of our deacons need to embrace the concept, at least, of Sabbath. I need to be reminded of this. Scott Sutton needs to be reminded of it. Brad Cardwell needs to be reminded of it. That there's some times where we just say, hey, I can't help you. And I'm entrusting you to the Lord. And where you have to learn to depend on God more than you depend on the minister of God. Man, that's good and necessary. 50% of ministers starting out will not last five years. 70% felt God called them to pastoral ministry before their ministry began, but after three years of ministry, only 50% still felt called. Over 1,700 pastors left the ministry every month last year. Over 3,500 people a day left the church last year. Now, I don't know how they figured that. This is Barna, you know, which I don't know how they figured that out. I'm out. You know, that's sort of, somebody said, I'm out of the church. I know that that's the way they're qualifying that. 50% of pastors felt so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but had no other way of making a living. That's some pretty sad stats. 45.5% of pastors say they've experienced depression or burnout to the extent that they needed to take leave of absence from ministry. I see those figures, and I wonder how many of those guys really said, I'm going to intentionally set this aside even if somebody's mad at me, even if somebody says, hey, man, he's supposed to be there for me every day, any moment, or he says, you know what? I'm taking a break from you. Seeing this Sabbath encouragement here in Exodus chapter 35, right in the context of building the tabernacle, which was a huge thing to build God's house, man, that encourages me. I needed that. We have to take rest even from building his house. Yes. Now, it's going to take an ominous turn. Numbers chapter 15. This conversation is going to take an ominous turn in Numbers chapter 15. Because up to this point, it may have just felt a little bit like empty threat. Like breaking the Sabbath was, you know, you must die. Ooh, big deal. You don't even kindle your fire or you'll die. Oh, okay, right. Now look at Numbers chapter 15, verse 32. Let me go back to as you're turning there. It's not just elders and deacons in that last thought. I realize there are other people that are listening to these messages that are on the other side of the world that are serving in very hard contexts, that are sowing the seed into dark corners, that are planting churches south of us, all the way around the other side of the globe. And those guys that are listening in on this, those who are connected to ministries that deploy and go to far corners, you have to realize that the ministry is not dependent on you ultimately. And you have to be willing to park it a seventh of the time. Now, I'm not talking a day. I'm talking a concept. And I shouldn't even say a seventh. It's more of a concept that says, oh, it all belongs to him. It all belongs to him. 
So if I have to put this thing aside for this period or this day, I have to entrust it to him and entrust that he's going to do it in spite of me and without me for his own glory. Now, the ominous turn. Numbers 15, verse 32. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Big deal, right? Gathering sticks. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. Now, I had to laugh when I read that. It hasn't been made clear what should be done to him. I mean, did you listen to the other passages that we read? I mean, one right after another, what happens? Death, 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 death. And I'm sure they're all sitting there thinking, he's just picking up sticks. I mean, that's a little over the top, right? God, I mean, you surely had a picking up stick clause in there. I mean, come on. He likely was cold. He may have had a busy week. Didn't have time to get out and pick up sticks, right? Or he's stressed out, and, you know, he's cold. So they put him in custody, though, because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. The Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded him. Now, I'm reading that passage, and I'm going to tell you, I've read that passage most of my life, and I thought, wow, God must have really had a bad day. I mean, that just seems over the top. Sabbath breaker is executed. And what I realized contextually, if you look at what happens in the rest of Numbers in these next couple chapters, there's Korah's rebellion. If you've ever read the story of Korah's rebellion, Korah and these other guys rebel against Moses and God's appointed leadership, and the earth swallows them up. They have like this showdown at OK Corral, and they got their pistols out, and tumbleweed comes rolling by, and the earth swallows up Korah and his family and everybody else that was associated with him. It's a great story if you read it. But I'm convinced it's connected to executing the Sabbath breaker. It says right here in chapter 16, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. What's in between there is putting tassels on your garments. I just can't imagine that Korah and his crew have thinking, are thinking, you've gone too far with the whole tassels thing. That an uprising and rebellion results of that. But it makes total sense that an uprising and rebellion happens from stoning a dude, picking up sticks. Do you think these people were any different from you? If you're thinking it's over the top and excessive, can't you possibly imagine that they're thinking, God, seriously? You must be joking. A day of rest? How important is that? A day where we're not supposed to do any work? How important really is that? Surely it was just sort of an empty threat, but here you're telling us to actually stone this guy? And Korah and his crew lead a rebellion that I can't imagine that's not connected to that. I might be part of a rebellion if I was in that context. It's a shocker. It seems excessive. Now let me promise this to you. Three or four weeks from now, 
the, the, the excessive nature of this, three or four weeks from now in that sermon, I can't remember if it's third or fourth, it's going to make total sense. And you're going to be like, aha, now I've, oh, I have a place to park that now. It wasn't a bad day. It was part of the story, and I needed to see it. I needed to hear the rocks hit flesh to get why it seemed so excessive and why it was commanded. But man, you can imagine, you can stand with Korah just for a few minutes and go, wow, that seems excessive. Okay, Deuteronomy 5. This is the last one I'm having you turn to. And then you can just recover from some work. Take a Sabbath. Deuteronomy 5. This one is full of treasure. Beginning in verse 12. <clears throat> now let me give you context. The book of Exodus is the story of the Exodus. Okay, it's, It seems obvious, but it's not always obvious. It's the story of a people being liberated from Egypt and the story of part of that journey together in the wilderness. Numbers is really the story of most of the journey. And then Deuteronomy is where they're at the end of the journey. Deuteronomy takes place where they're parked at Mount Nebo. They begin the journey at Mount Sinai, and 38 years later, they're at Mount Nebo looking over into the promised land. Nearly all the first generation is dead. Moses isn't dead yet, maybe a few other stragglers. Everybody's watching their clock, saying, you ready to die? I'm ready to go into promised land. Come on, I got my shovel. Moses hadn't died yet. He's on Nebo. And here in Deuteronomy, he's recasting the Ten Commandments. That's the context. So there have been 38 years at this point of Sabbaths, 38 years of weekly practice in what is the Sabbath. So you may find, and we actually are going to find, a little more information about what the Sabbath is from this reference. 38 years of Sabbaths and lots of funerals later. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Okay, nothing new. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do no, or you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Same teaching there. Do all your work in six days. No work for you, for your kids, for your manservant, for your womanservant, for your critters, for the sojourner, so that your servants can rest Two. Something that's introduced here is really it's hints of it in other places that we've already read. Hints of the Sabbath being a real humanitarian thing. Where we see a God caring for his creation. And caring for all people, even the lowliest, even the servant, even the alien. What I enjoyed about this picture, really considering here where the slave and the servant gets a day to rest, is on this day, the slave became a free man. On this day, the slave became a free man. 
And as you see in these next few weeks, as we consider really what the Sabbath is and what our Sabbath rest is, then you can really enjoy that on God's Sabbath, don't just think day, in God's Sabbath, the slave finds freedom. That gives me goosebumps. In God's Sabbath, the slave finds freedom. Man, little hints of what we swim in right here. Little glimpses of what we are lavished with. I'm so eager to preach this. I can't wait for these next few weeks. He says to remember, there's a new element here that's introduced. Remember that you too were a slave in Egypt. Remember on this one day a week or this one year in seven, remember that you too were a slave in Egypt and don't put them to work. Don't let them work on that day because you were, emphasis, were a slave. For the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. This satellite introduces really the next and second purpose of Sabbath. The first purpose was rest and, give, and have thanksgiving and rest thinking on creation. For God created in six and he rested on the seventh. Well, here's the second part of Sabbath that's introduced right here. Rest and enjoy God in your deliverance. Rest and enjoy his creation, one. And rest and enjoy your deliverance, two. The next passage I'm not even going to read, I'm going to summarize for you, is in Leviticus chapter 23. Here in this passage in Leviticus chapter 23, the feasts and the festivals are introduced that the nation of Israel is to practice and enjoy year after year. And the Sabbath is counted among these festivals with the Passover, with the Feast of First Fruits, with the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths. Sabbath is listed right there with those feasts and festivals. These are regular days and occasions that are set apart so Israel could meditate on different aspects of God. Regular, periodic, relentless engagement, enjoying who God is and what he's done. And Sabbath is listed right there as a weekly festival, weekly feast. Now, I'm going to share some extra biblical findings. These aren't in your Bible. These came from some ancient Hebrew writings. It's just a short list here. Consider these things about early Sabbath that the Hebrews enjoyed. First of all, there was a day of preparation the day prior. Friday was considered the day of preparation for Sabbath on Saturday. And on the day of preparation, things took place like preparing. Everything was readied. The lamps were filled. Kindling was gathered. Bread was kneaded. Meals cooked. Critters fed. Clothes washed. Grass was cut. Scott Edwards looking at me funny. It's a joke. What a funny one, but it was a joke. 
Grass was cut. Whatever took place that needed to take place before the Sabbath day was done in preparation for that day. Kindling is gathered, right? Numbers chapter 15 guy. Kindling is gathered on Friday as you prepare for Sabbath. Sabbath began at sunset on the day prior. So on Friday at sunset is officially when the Sabbath would begin. I found this exciting and encouraging. An extra meal was prepared in addition to the normal meals for the Sabbath day. You ate an extra meal on the Sabbath. And what was encouraging to me was that extra meal until I found out that the normal meal that they only had two normal meals a day. So on the Sabbath day, they actually had three. I thought for a minute they might have four because their normal meals might be two. But it turns out they only had two normal meals But on the Sabbath day, they had a third. On the Sabbath day, on this special meal, they put on their best clothes. I understand some of them wore bow ties and wingtips. Guests were invited. Think about that for a minute. Guests were invited on this day where we enjoyed God. Man, there's an otherness to the story, even early, even ancient and otherness, come and see, come take and eat. Come and see and enjoy my God. Guests were invited. Half of the day was spent eating and drinking, and half of the day was spent in instruction of the things of God. Eating and drinking and instruction of the things of God. Part of the day was celebrated at home as rest and refreshment. And the rest of the day was celebrated corporately in public worship. So, some of the Sabbath data that we've gathered this morning. Sabbath data that's going to transfer into these next few weeks. First of all, it's seriously important. The concept. Seriously important. It shows up in week one. It makes the top ten. Death to the transgressor of the Sabbath. I found too in studying the New Testament context and the Sabbath, I found that most nearly, not every single one, but nearly every single one of the conflicts that Christ got in with the Pharisees had to do with the Sabbath. This thing that's underdeveloped, underconsidered, undertaught is the thing that Christ had most of his conflict with with the Pharisees. It is seriously important, the concept. It's a day or a year or a concept involving extreme trust. Trusting God even in times of plowing and harvest. It's a time of extreme rest, doing all your work in six. The thing that you're commanded to do in six, you're commanded not to do in this Sabbath concept. In the seventh, you must be prepared for it. A whole day is dedicated to it preparing, gathering, kindling, etc. The mindset around Sabbath has got to be this proactive, intentional rest that takes planning and takes effort. We're so reactive when it comes to rest, most of us. But the mindset of true biblical rest is something you got to plan for. It's something you got to prepare for. This is going to have so much travel in these next few weeks. 
It's a day or a year or a concept of celebrating God. Without an intentional celebration of God, it's not the rest he commanded. I want y'all to hear that. Whether you're thinking day, concept, whatever. Without celebrations being part of it, it's not the rest that he commanded. If you just cease working, it's just being lazy. It's got to be ceasing work and doing something involving celebrating God. It's for man's benefit, not just to rest, but to rest considering and enjoying God as creator and God as deliverer. It's a time or a mindset that's regular, that's weekly, that's perpetual to call to mind that man owes everything to God who provides for all his needs. Hear that. Man owes everything to God who provides for all his needs. I'm enjoying that we just said that together, that you're thinking it and hearing it, that I had a chance to say it because it's true. He provides for all our needs. It's refreshing. It's refreshing even for someone who thinks they don't need it. God didn't need it, but he took it and found refreshment. So Sabbath for us, at least the concept, would be something we would find refreshing. It would be proactive in that approach and not reactive. If it was just reactive, then God would have never rested. So someone that has a perception of need as driving rest is missing it. God didn't need it, but he did it. And lastly, it's solemn, and all creation needs it. It's important. Some questions to leave you with this morning before we have our supper. Questions to consider in these next few weeks as families, small group shepherds, to think about these questions together as you gather this week. Families, as you gather and you talk with your children and you talk with each other, here's some things to ask yourselves and consider together. In regards to Sabbath as a day or a year or a concept, first question, do you rest? Ever. Some don't. Do you rest? Ever. What are you saying about God when you don't? What are you saying about God when you don't rest to others? Inadvertently. Can God be trusted? Can he be depended on? Or are you the Savior who's going to save the day? What do you say about God when you don't rest? What do you say about God when you do rest? Do you plan for rest? Do you prepare for it? Are you proactive? Are you reactive in rest? Does your rest have two parts? Is it A, resting intentionally from work? And B, 
resting intentionally in God as creator and deliverer. Do you ever, as an act of worship and as an act of rest, consider the lilies? Consider the ravens. Do you ever consider for a moment the day-to-day pours forth speech? Night-to-night reveals knowledge of the glory of God. Psalm 19. Do you ever for a moment just consider what a cup of tea smells like? And thank your God for olfactory senses. Do you ever taste a meal and not just gobble it, but just taste it? Ecclesiastes says, who can eat or find enjoyment without him? Do you realize you have three opportunities a day for Sabbath where we sit at a meal and enjoy his provision? Tasting it. Not gobbling, inhaling. I'm the master of that. But actually stopping and tasting it. What opportunity do we have for Sabbath that are right, that's right under our nose? We can enjoy him as creator. Day to day pours forth speech and we'll find refreshment in just considering it. That's as creator. Secondly, as deliverer. Do you ever stop intentionally to consider and enjoy him as deliverer? My mind immediately went to Exodus chapter 14, considering him as deliverer, where the nation of Israel is facing the Red Sea, and they've got the army of Pharaoh behind them, a big cloud of dust as this army is bearing down on them. They are hopeless and helpless. They have no out. The Red Sea is too big to swim across. Moses said to the people, fear not, Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, Yeshua. See Yeshua of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. What Sabbath rest do we find in considering him as deliverer just intentionally? Intentionally. Man, what opportunities right in front of us today to enjoy Him? Do you enjoy Him mindfully tasting, smelling, hearing? Hearing this symphony of sound around us every morning. Birds, with wind. Man, this beauty we have in front of us, the lilies, the birds, the music of life that surrounds us, that shows us his handiwork and his glory. Do you encourage your servants to Sabbath? Some of you have employees. Really, think about it. Think about ways this concept can actually connect. Do you have employees that you discourage from working all the time? Do you have employees or people who work for you in some capacity, whether it's a crew or whether it's employees, that you say, I want you to rest this today or this week or this expanse of time, and I want you to enjoy God's provision as you go. Here, matter of fact, take this and take your wife to dinner. What a testimony you could be as a boss 
What a marvelous picture of Sabbath you offer your employees and your crew and your manservants and your female servants and your children. Do you do this with your children? Man, our children don't need a whole lot of work and a whole lot of training to rest. But to rest in God, now that's a different matter. My children need that. I bet yours do too. Intentional training. I want you to rest in God during this period of time. You can find some rest in we, but it's not the same thing as rest in God. It's not the same thing. Teaching our people, leading our people, encouraging our people, those who work for us, those who are being raised up in our home, to rest from work and to rest in Him. And lastly, do you see this important? You see this as important. Sabbath. Shows up in week one. It makes the top ten. And it's in nearly every conflict that Jesus had with the Pharisees. And it's coming up in Hebrews 4 as a treasure. Do you see the concept of it's important? I hope you do as a result of our time that we spent together today. The Lord's Supper that we're about to take is going to be in keeping with some of this extra biblical data that I shared with you. This third meal, this third meal of celebration that they had as part of their Sabbath celebration, I'd like for that to be the spirit of our our meal that we take together today, a meal of celebration, a meal where we put on our best clothes and we consider his provision We consider his goodness, we consider his creation, and we consider his deliverance all in one setting. Today as we take and eat, I invite you, if you're enjoying God this morning, maybe a little bit more as a result of the time that we spent together, maybe if you're leaning in the direction, I want to find and understand rest. I want to find and understand what it means to rest in him and not just rest from work. Then let's start with this meal. It's a great place to start. You rest in a work that was completed completely outside of you. When Christ said, it is finished, he ceased from his work, and now he is seated at the right hand. Seated. Because he's in a Sabbath rest right now, so to speak. And when we take and eat that meal, we are enjoying his Sabbath. And we're enjoying the fact that when he said it's finished, salvation-wise, work-wise... The work, salvation-wise, is finished for us as well. We're working, but it's in a different response. It's in a different trajectory altogether than salvation. As we take this meal together, we're enjoying all those things all at once. Let me pray, and we'll distribute the elements. Lord, I'm thankful that we as a people have such... such opportunity to enjoy you from day to day that we've in some ways had a metaphor of that just this morning as we've stopped down with really no plan of no no application points for us to walk away with no to-do list just considering who you are and what you've done in this institution creation of this seventh day rest what I I see that in some ways that we've done what we can do each week and just sitting and enjoying you with no other plan than just enjoyment.
I'm thankful that we have those opportunities all week long, and I ask your forgiveness that we so seldom engage them. Lord, I pray that you will teach us to find Sabbath in a day, in a year, in an hour, in a quiet meal with people that you love, in a weekly gathering, in a Lord's Supper. Lord, I'm thankful that we can find ultimate Sabbath rest in this meal that we're about to take, enjoying that you've done the saving work already. We exhale together this morning, taking this meal and worshiping you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I don't know why it is, but it climbs all over me when Daniel McGraw wants to eat standing up. Like he comes in the kitchen, and he's just a metaphor of, I think, how we are, 100 miles an hour, man. He's he got stuff he want to do, you know. He's eating, you know, I want to go play. I want to go jump on the trampoline, go jump in the pool, go find something to get into. And eating is just sort of a... Uh, Daniel, sit down. We're human beings. We sit on our behinds to eat a meal. <laughs> I like that thought this morning where we can just in some ways just park it. Park the work. Park the hustle for a minute and consider what we can really rest in at a good meal. And this is a good and hearty meal. I mean, the world says, I mean, well, let's be honest. Little wee, little piece of bread, little tiny cup. But when we know what this represents, oh man, that is a flowing river. Right? What did we sing at the beginning? And this is ample provision that really satisfies when we know what this represents. And it's the only thing that really satisfies. And today when we take this, we're enjoying that we rest in him. And that's true and good, honest rest. This may be the most restful thing we do together all week. So let's take and eat and rest. Take and drink and rest. Lord, we are thankful uh, for this day. We are thankful for the opportunity to come and to to worship you in spirit and in truth, to hear uh, the preached word. And I pray that we would respond in worship. Uh, Lord, I'm personally very convicted about not resting well. Um, And I confess that in front of the body and hope that others will confess that as needed and repent and follow you in obedience. As we heard this morning, um, there there is rest to be had, um, but but it's only in you. And so uh, we're eager to learn more about that in the coming weeks. I pray that you would help us to walk in what we've heard.
I pray for the way Casey's as they're joining that, that you would um, quicken them to to understand their gifts, to use their gifts uh, in service uh, to the body and to the community, and uh, that um, they would experience the joy of that unity that we have in Christ that's a gift. Um, I'm thankful for their urgency to preserve that through, through membership. We love you, Lord, and uh, we thank you for Christ, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.